Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open it up to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We've been in this series, started through the Lenten season, and we've been talking about a God-soaked life. And did you know that the Easter Sunday actually initiates a a calendaring time in the year called Easter Tide. Has anybody ever heard of Easter Tide that season? Easter Tide is the season of 50 days from Easter Sunday to Pentecost Sunday. And the word tide is kind of an old English word. It just means season or time. So here's what Easter Tide is. It means that Easter, when Jesus walked out of that tomb, when that stone was rolled away, there's a ripple effect that sent out from that tomb in Jerusalem that brings with it more and more and more life, Easter tide. In other words, Easter isn't the end of something, the end of the Lenten season. It's really more accurately the beginning of something. The beginning is life, more and more and more life. And the book of Colossians is a great illustration of Easter tide. Because do you remember back when we started the series? Go ahead and put the map up for us, Ted. Here's kind of geographically the church in Colossae. So on the screen there, do you see Jerusalem in the lower right-hand corner? Do you see? So in Jerusalem, 33 AD, Easter Sunday, that first resurrection Sunday, Jesus walked out of the tomb, and the angel rolled the stone away to show everyone else he is not there, he has risen. Right there, from that dot in the lower right-hand corner. And then the shockwave from that rippled out. And do you know where, does, does, does Damascus ring a bell to anyone? What happened on the road to Damascus? A man named Saul is strolling along, ready to arrest and persecute Christians. He wants to shut down the Jesus train. And Saul's on this road, and the shockwave from this resurrection tomb of Jesus bowls him over, strikes him blind, says, I've got something for you to do, Saul. Number one, I'm going to change your name from Saul, capital S, to Paul, capital P. And Saul means great one, Paul means little one. And just with one consonant change, he gave Paul the picture of the rest of his life. And this is the Apostle Paul then, who makes the trek from Damascus, giving a new assignment from Jesus. This is the same Paul who was going to arrest the Christians, who's now going and spreading the news of this Jesus. He's talking about the resurrected Christ. He's saying Christ is all, Rome is not all. Christ is your hope. Christ is your light. Christ is your peep. Peace. Rome is not that. So he's the one taking all of that out. And he's moving now, follow it now, left-hand side through modern-day Turkey. He goes over to Ephesus. What happens in Ephesus? He talks to a young man named Epaphras. And the shockwave of resurrection life rippling out from Jerusalem, it makes its way all the way over to Ephesus. And a man named Epaphras comes to life. So Paul comes to life on the road to Damascus spiritually. Epaphras comes to life spiritually on the, in the area of Ephesus, and then he makes the trek to Colossae. It's Epaphras who goes to Colossae, and he starts talking about the shockwave of resurrection life that rippled out from that empty tomb in Jerusalem. And now there's a little church in this area of modern-day Turkey, and the letter called Colossians is written to this group of believers. And we've been tracking How Paul now, Paul's in Rome. So look, the shockwave gets all the way over to the upper left-hand corner of the map. 
He's over in Rome behind bars writing this letter. Now, why is he in Rome and why is he behind bars? Because the Roman Empire's leadership has grasped, if Paul's right, then the empire has an end date. And they weren't interested in that. Roman Empire was convinced they were the answer, they were the hope, they were the light, they were the salvation, they were the peace. The Roman Empire and all of its leadership was the main deal. And so Paul's writing a letter saying, actually, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, Romans, and God raised from the dead, actually his kingdom is the the one that's not going to have any end. Hey, Roman Empire, your kingdom has an end date. Jesus' kingdom doesn't have an end date. That's what gets you behind bars in Rome. You with me? So that's where Paul is. The shockwave is all the way over to Rome, over there. And he's writing this letter that we're reading now to this small group of believers, a little church forming in Colossae. And what we're going to look at this morning is, we're in chapter 3 now. So if you haven't been tracking with us through the series, you can start, we started it mid-February, and you can catch up online that way and just kind of follow us through the first three chapters. And we're now in chapter 3, and today we're going to look at kind of two, I want you to think of them as two movements that happen in your life when you're on the receiving end of the shockwave of Jesus' resurrection. How do you know the ripple effect of that empty tomb in Jerusalem has rolled over your heart. Two markers for it in Colossians 3. Look at verse 1 and following. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Do you see that? So Paul, there's the shockwave of raised with Christ. That's all from that empty tomb in Jerusalem. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, reference to Good Friday, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Do you see how that that kind of mirrors what we did through Holy Week? We put our feet where Jesus put his. And Paul is saying to this early church, you keep putting your feet where Jesus put his. You're going to die with him. You're going to be buried with him, and you're going to rise with him. Do you see that? This is what he's, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, underline, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the first kind of movement that happens in our life when the shockwave of resurrection life rolls over our hearts is there's a shift, there's this, there's a focus that changes with our thought life. There's a focus of our thought life that's changed and it's changing. Because that's really the picture of what it means to come to know Jesus. There's a changed element when you come to know Christ and there's a changing element. There's some things that instantaneously happen when you come to know Christ. Did you, did you track with him when he said verse one, raised with Christ, verse three, died with Christ, verse three, hidden with Christ, verse four, appear with Christ in glory. Paul's saying, if those things are true, that stuff happens instantaneously. It's called salvation. When you give your heart to Christ, there's some things that happen in a moment. You're changed in a moment. And then there's things that are changing over time. And here Paul says, one of the things that's going to be changing in your life over time is what are you giving your thoughts to? Like you're setting your mind on some things that before you encountered this resurrected Christ in your life, you weren't thinking about. I think the most important thing about our minds 
is what we set them upon. Like, what you allow your mind to focus on and dwell upon has a great deal of effect of the kind of person you become. And I happen to believe that that's the single greatest degree of freedom any of us have in life, the freedom to choose what we allow our minds to dwell upon. It's an unbelievable freedom. And this is what Dallas Willard's bringing up in this quote here. Listen to what Dallas says. I put it in your notes. The ultimate freedom we have as individuals is the power to select what will allow or require our minds to dwell upon and think about. You tracking with Dallas here? Sometimes with Dallas, you got to kind of read him twice. But by think, we mean all the ways in which we are aware of things, including our memories, perceptions, beliefs. The focus of your thoughts significantly affects everything else that happens in your life and evokes the feelings that frame your world and motivate your actions. One of the greatest freedoms we have in life is the freedom to what we set our minds upon. So here's, how, here's a movement that happens in your heart, an indicator that you've encountered the resurrected Christ, that this Easter message isn't just historical, it's gotten personal. How do you know it's gotten personal with Easter? You're choosing to think about some things, you're setting your minds upon some things that you formerly weren't thinking about. And you're doing that as an act of your will. And so I put a little diagram on your notes. It's a diagram that kind of represents in concentric circles a, a person. This is kind of the aspects of a personhood here. At the core is your will. The core of who you are as a person is, you know you've got a freedom to choose what you say yes and no to, whether you're going to do good or evil. It's your will. And then outside of that will is this is where your mind is. And I put a little summary in your notes there. Your mind is this, what we're talking about now, what you're setting it upon, your thoughts and your feelings. Your mind is what you're conscious, the way you're conscious of things. And do you know a good indicator of what's going on in here is what your mind is preoccupied with. You know, if you could just track your thought life, whatever's occupying someone's thought life is a good indicator of what's going on in the interior world, kind of character reference. Also, what are the things you're not thinking about? Dallas talks about it's a great indicator of maturity. Like the longer you walk with Jesus, there are some thoughts that no longer occur to you. Do you see that? Like you just don't even have that thought anymore because Christ has matured you beyond that, that formerly you were consumed with. We'll get to that in just a minute. But follow now, so you've got your will to choose, and then you've got your mind, which kind of reveals what, what you're thinking about and not thinking about, shows you a lot about your character. And then there's your body. Your body's your physical presence in this world. Your body is how you carry out actions. It's your identity as a person. It's how you relate to other people. It's through your body itself. And there are certain behaviors we kind of outsource to our body. Like you don't, you don't make choice. Like your body just gets trained to do what your body does. So after you learn how to drive, you just drive. After you learn how to tie your shoe, you just tie your shoe. After you learn how to speak a language, you just speak a language. You've outsourced through your will and your mind. You've outsourced some things that your body just does what it's been trained to do. Now stay with me here. What encompasses all of this is that outer circle. When the Bible talks about soul, that's the outer circle. It's the operating system that integrates the will, the mind, and the body. It's your soul. It's the core essence of who you are as a person. Are you tracking with me? So when, when the Bible uses soul, it's embodying all these elements to it. 
So I put, in the, I put in my notes, your soul integrates your will, your intentions, with your mind, your thoughts and feelings, and your body, your face, your body language, and your actions into a singular life. That's your soul. And so when this shockwave of resurrection life rolls out of the tomb in Jerusalem, when that rolls across your heart, it affects every element of your person. Your will, your mind, your body, your soul are all impacted by it. And specifically here in Colossians 3, he's diving in. The two elements we're looking at today are the two inner circles, the will and the mind. He's saying, hey, if you've genuinely met Jesus, like if Jesus has gotten personal with you, if this isn't just some historical thing, if this isn't just a Christmas and Easter thing, if, if it's really become personal, you're going to start thinking about some things that you didn't used to think about. So before Jesus got personal in your life, you might have wandered in to the territory of Christmas and Easter thinking about things like sacrifice and sin and salvation and heaven and hell and like righteousness and holiness and purity and honoring God. Like you might have wandered into that territory randomly. Maybe when parents, grandparents, friends drug you into a church setting on a holiday weekend, you sit and you think, huh. Or maybe a funeral setting of a close loved one, you sit there and go, huh. But then you quickly move on and your mind gets preoccupied with not the things of Colossians 1, 2, and 3. But when the resurrection life of Christ rolls over your heart and you come to life, here's what happens. The kinds of truths we've been talking about in Colossians begin to be moved to the forefront of your mind more often. Now hear me, not perfectly. It's not that you're always thinking about it. I'm just saying if you were to plot it on a graph, there's an uptick in your thought life towards the things of Christ. That Christ is all. That he is the firstborn over all creation. That he is the supremacy. That by him and to him and through him are all things. That Christ is life. That he is light. That he is hope. That these things, salvation and holiness and purity and heaven and hell and walking with him and living life with God, that stuff moves to the front burner. Are you with me in this? This is an indicator that resurrection life has gotten personal with you. That isn't just some kind of neat thing that we sing about at Easter and that you study about historically. No, there's a shockwave. Easter tide has hit your heart when there's a shift in your thoughts from changed to changing. And this doesn't happen instantaneously. This takes time. Have you, some of you have recently come to Christ. Some of our recent baptisms. There's some immediate things that shifted in your hearts and we rejoice in that. I talked to a man last week after service who came up just to testify that last year when he met Christ, instantaneously God set him free from a 40-plus year addiction. Hallelujah, we rejoice in that. That's a changed moment. Now, that's not everybody's story. Some of you who have met Christ have experienced that kind of power that you've been changed. Others of you are working through the changing process. See, becoming a disciple is a moment in time. You become a disciple when you choose Christ. That's the moment you become a disciple. You become born again is Bible language for it. Salvation. That's a moment in time you become a disciple. Now track, discipleship happens over time. 
So disciple is changed. Discipleship is the process of changing. And that's a lifelong journey. So there's some things instantaneously that may change with your thought life. Most likely, a good portion of it's going to be changing over time. It's going to be exercising your will, what you choose, to focus your mind, your thoughts upon. It's going to occur over the course of time. And this is what Paul's saying. Hey, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because you've come to life. Because you were dead in your sin. Now you're alive in Christ. Because you've got this resurrection life living within you. Now there's some new thought. There's some things that are occupying your thought life that never used to occupy your thought life, at least for any length of time. And this is one of those indicators in the scale of how do I know that really this resurrection life has impacted me personally. There's some shifting happening with what's occupying our thoughts. Now we're going to move from that section, will and mind, right? We're going to just focus now, follow this in verse 5 and following. Notice what Paul says here. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Notice there's some changed elements. You used to be this way. That's the change. But notice all the language is, but now you must rid yourself of all such things. Here's the changing element. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. So you see now from verse 5 to 10, here Paul unpacks the intersection of what Bible language calls old self, old ways, old nature. He uses a phrase called the earthly nature. And here's what Paul's saying. Before the ripple, the shockwave of resurrection life hit your heart, Here's the reality. The old ways, old self, old nature, earthly nature, it had the upper hand. You had no shot of really dealing with old ways, old self, earthly nature until you come to life spiritually. Now help us think about this. I thought we'd just talk a little about kayaking this morning. So you know, since the weather in Indiana has been so kayak-like these days, right, I thought we'd just kind of envision a time when you dropped your kayak in a river, something a little more aggressive than turkey run, but, you know, track with me. So when you drop a kayak into a river and you plop down into it, here's what I want you to think about. And you get floating down, let's say it's a pretty aggressive current, not dealing with the oar, because you got this, right? You got this. Now, you experienced kayakers know I've got maybe, what, 15 seconds before this thing goes south? Because, right, when you get in a kayak, you immediately have to begin to navigate what? The current. If you just, let's say you just coat, hey, I'm just going for a float with my kayak. Where am I going to be Shortly. I'm going to be somewhere I don't want to be. I'm going to be lodged up against some rock over here, some log there. I'm going to be spun around, twisted around, right? So here, here's what Paul says. Before resurrection life ripples over your heart, here's, here's what we got. The old self, old ways, earthly nature. 
Your earthly nature is like the current in that river. Before you met Jesus, here's what we're trying to do. You know, here I am, I get in the, get in the river and I float. Oh, I don't want to go there. And the best thing I know to do, I just take my hand. Right? I'm, just, I'm just paddling like, I'm going to paddle like crazy. Anybody try to do that just with your hands? You try, oh, I don't want to go over there. Oh, I need to steer clear of that. I need to steer clear of that. Whoa, I need to back up from that. This isn't going anywhere good. And you're just trying with your hand. You're trying in your own wisdom and strength to navigate the current of your earthly nature. It's as futile as trying to kayak with your hands. Here's the essence of the gospel of Jesus. When you come to Christ, here's what he, here's what he does. Jesus hands you the oars. When you come to Christ, I'll give you the oars, and then I'll infuse your body. Picture a lot more upper body strength than me. Work with me here. I'll infuse your body with some strength, okay? Now, notice when you come to Christ, you're like, well, Simpson, why didn't he change the current in the river? Sorry, that's a discussion for another day, but listen. The current in the river doesn't change just because you come to know Jesus. For some of you, that's an illustration about your Christian life. You expected once you got in Jesus' canoe and he handed you the oars, current's going to shift and you can just, hey, Christ saved me by grace. He loves me. I'm cruising. I'm coasting. Jesus and I, right, we're homies now. We're together. And we're just floating along. Gang, if, you just, if he hands you the oars and you take your oars and you just do this, you just go along, hey, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you just coast off. Where's my kayak going to be? Lodged against some rock. Somewhere I don't want it to be. Up against some log. Just because you've been given this, what's the, what's the picture now? Hey, he gives you the oars in Christ, and then he gives you the strength by the Holy Spirit, and now it's your point what? Stick those oars in the water, and you've got to start rowing. This is the second part of Colossians 3. This is the area of disciple. This is what discipleship's all about right here, right? You can't do it without Christ's help. I say, I can't. This whole point, I can't. Jesus, you can. Now, Simpson, row. That's discipleship. And here's how Dallas put it. I think this gets at the core of kind of the, the issue when we get in the kayak with Jesus. Listen to what Dallas said. Those who say we cannot truly follow Christ turn out to be correct in a sense. We cannot behave on the spot as he did and taught if the rest of our time we live as everybody else does. The on-the-spot episodes are the place where we can, even by the grace of God, redirect unchristlike but ingrained tendencies. That's all that language in Colossians 3 of action towards sudden Christ-likeness. Follow this. Our efforts to take control at that moment will fail so uniformly and ingloriously that the whole project of following Christ will appear ridiculous to the watching world. Did you track all that? Here's what Dallas is saying. Dallas said, hey, you get in the canoe and Jesus hands you the oar and you expect the current in the river just to go towards Christ-like ways. And then you realize you stay at it for a little bit. He changes some things right away. 
You got a new name, a new heart, a new spirit, a new identity. He's given you some new tools. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you the scriptures. He's given you the body of Christ. He's done so many things instantaneously. He's changed. But the problem is, we have, there's this transfer of a readiness to do what is wrong. There's got to be a movement, a training, and a readiness to do what is right. If your body has been trained for 40 or 50 years in a default mode of a readiness to do what is wrong, then to expect instantaneously your body to be trained in a readiness to do what is right is crazy. you got to train. you got to stick oars in the water with Christ's help to grow. That's the language of Colossians 3. There's nothing passive about what he said in Colossians 3. Take off your old, put on your new, get rid of, put to death. That's all active. There's nothing passive about this life. You don't just get in the canoe with Jesus and just check out because it's your life that's engaged. He says, hey, pick up the oars, stick them in the water, and let's go. Let's start rowing this life together, navigating the current together, and you'll get where you need to be. And so practically, like, how do we work this out then practically? Well, that's what Colossians 3 getting at. Hey, there's, this is what, I want you to think of spiritual practices as this, as you stick in the oars in the water. So, like, practically what's going on in your life these days where there's a contact point between old self, old ways, and your new life in Christ, your life that's hidden with Christ in God, and there's a contact point where those two are rubbing against each other. And right there is a great implementation point for spiritual practices. So, so for me, recently, I've been really challenged by a whole sequence of things going on in my life and such where I just go, you know what, I feel like the, the James 1 text where it says, be slow to speak and quick to listen, I'd like to have that more ingrained into myself and in my behaviors than it previously has been. I feel like I've been too quick to speak and not a readiness to listen as I'd like to be. So I've been recognizing, I feel like God's brought an awareness of that. That's kind of the old self, old ways, new life, new ways. Like, okay, that's the contact point. I'd like to be a little slower to use words, a little quicker to listen. So what do you do? So what I've tried to do, I'm going to stick some oars in the water. The oars I'm going to stick in the water, for me, I've been practicing larger blocks of time in silence, shutting my mouth before the Lord and being still and being quiet. I'm just trying to practice. I'm trying to work that muscle. This is what a spiritual practice is. You do what you can by direct effort that in the hands of the Holy Spirit, he'll enable you to do what you cannot now do by direct effort. That's a spiritual practice. So I'm just setting aside like 10 minutes in the morning. I'm trying to take some time around lunch hour, maybe just a minute or two at lunch hour to pause and be quiet, and then trying to get to like five or 10 minutes at the end of the day, just in silence, just in quiet, just in stillness. I'm trying, this is my way of working against this current. And you can apply this to anything. Where's the contact point for you where you feel like, hey, here's where old ways and new ways are intersecting. Here's a step of growth you feel like Jesus is calling you to as a disciple. And he's handed you the oars, and he's given you strength. Maybe worry's just taken over, and you're like, you know what? Have you ever tried really, really hard not to worry? How's that working out? That's like this. That's like trying to paddle. You set the oar. Yeah, I'm going to try really hard not to worry. I got, I'm, I'm not worrying. And you're just trying to do this. You got no shot. Or some of you bound up with lust and pornography and thought life stuff. You're like, that's it. I'm done with all that dark side with my eyes and my thoughts and all that. And you're just going to do it yourself. You're trying really, really hard in your own wisdom and strength. How's that working out? That's this. 
right? Or selfishness. Anybody just got a real front row seat to how incredibly selfish you are? Anybody tried really, really hard to say, God, I'm just going to work really, really hard to deal with my selfishness. How's that working out? The whole thing is an effort in futility. So he says, hey, no, look, the gospel says, you can't, I can, Christ can. So stick the oars in the water and row. Let's do this together. And you put some practices in place that in the hands of the Spirit enable you to get where you want to go over the course of time. And this is the changed and changing. So this is the second movement you can monitor in your heart. There's a change in your thought life that goes on, and there's a change in your everyday choices. You are making some decisions about how you're going to handle your mind, your will, your body these days that before you met Jesus, you wouldn't be making those changes. You wouldn't be making those choices. That's resurrection life. And remember, in this life, you can thank Genesis 3 for the fact that the current in the river is going to stay strongly the direction it's been going. But how glorious is this thought? Do you know what one of the most glorious things about heaven is going to be? <laughs> oh, one of the most glorious things about heaven is we take our last breath in this life and our first breath in that life. <laughs> the current in the river changed. Whoa, I can't wait to get in that kayak. That's going to be amazing. It's in heaven where you get to set this down once and for all. And you get to just ride your kayak because the current is the way God always intended in heaven. It's going to flow towards the things of righteousness, holiness, goodness, and truth. In this life, we're going to need a heavy dose of this. And we're going to need a lot of encouragement to each other. And we're going to need a lot of wisdom and discernment about how to put those oars in the water because the current is strongly going the other way. So this is real discipleship. There are elements that are changed in your heart when you come to Christ, and there are elements that are in a process of ongoing and changing. So this week, I want you to real practically think about where can you stick the oars in the water this week. In the thought life area, here's a practical thing you can do with your thought life. You can say every hour on the hour from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., set the timer on your phone. Every hour on the hour, you're going to take about 15 seconds, and you're going to pause, and you're going to repeat. You're going to consciously bring to your mind Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. That's putting the oars in the water. You can do that. Every hour on the hour, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., just pause 15 seconds. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. And purposefully set your mind there. And just see what happens as you kind of row that way. You can do that. Or maybe there's something practical. You, I talked to a young mom this past week who has decided because she would like to have a, a little quieter mind. I don't know if anybody's struggling with just the, the noise and the racing mind. They can't, they can't quite get focused and still on any one thing. They're kind of scattered about many things. If you're struggling with that picture, what she's chosen to do is she set her alarm clock 30 minutes earlier than all of her kids are getting up, and she's just taking 30 minutes to be still and be quiet and be with the Lord in the mornings in an attempt. This is her sticking her oars in the water, doing what she can by direct effort. She can't just make her mind become less still and more centered on Christ. You can't just make yourself do that, but there are some things you can do, and that is carving out space. And then God's going to meet her there, and over the course of months, I think her mind's going to become a little quieter, a little more still. The sediment's going to settle, and there'll be more of a centeredness. You pick anything. Scripture, fasting, solitude, prayer. Those of you battling worry, you need to think about, well, what, am I spending any energy and effort praying through 
Prayer is a good picture of what you're trusting God for. What are you praying through as a relation to what you're worrying about? Say, well, I'm going to stick some oars in the water, and instead of being overcome with worry on that, I'm going to spend more energy and effort praying specifically through that. Now see what God does with that. And on and on it can go. Because when the ripple effect of Jesus' empty tomb rolls across your heart, it's going to show up in your thoughts and in your choices. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Easter Sunday being a beginning. Not an ending, but a beginning. And it's shockwave rippling out from Jerusalem. Here we are in North America, and it's rippled its way across bodies of water and continents of land to come here. And with it brings life, more and more and more life. And so we're asking for you to do a mighty work in our thought life, do a mighty work in our everyday choices, wherever that intersection is, Lord, between the old ways, old self, and the new ways and new self. Give us wisdom and clarity and discernment of where to stick the oars in the water and by the power of your Spirit, row against a current that just feels so overwhelmingly strong. And thank you that our life is hidden with you in Christ. Thank you that you've given us an oar. Thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit. And thank you that you've given us the promise of breakthrough. And so we pray for breakthrough. We pray for growth and change in our discipleship. In Jesus' name, amen.